Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 247, Keegan Chandler on the term homoousios. In this special episode of the Trinity's podcast, we'll hear a presentation by my friend Keegan Chandler called Revisiting Homoousios, Origins, Intentions, and Aftermath. The famous council in 325 was a big departure in Christian tradition. Up to that point, it had not been traditional to introduce new terminology into Christian theology and then say that it was mandatory. Moreover, many, and probably most Christians, found the key term of that new creed, homoousios, same substance or same essence, to be baffling. What did this term mean? Where did it come from? Didn't this term have heretical origins? In this presentation, Mr. Chandler focuses on the questions of where this term came from and why it was picked. This talk was given on May 4th, 2018 at the Theological Conference put on by Restoration Fellowship. You can understand this presentation audio only, but I recommend the YouTube version, which I made out of Chandler's beautiful and information-rich PowerPoint slides. Here then, Keegan Chandler. Thank you guys uh, so much for having me here today. Uh, this presentation is titled Revisiting Homoousios, Origins, Intentions, and Aftermath. And this is indeed a presentation about the Greek philosophical word homoousios and how and why the word was ever put in to the famous Nicene Creed of 325. The Council of Nicaea is certainly the most famous of the ancient councils of the church, and to this day its creed, or a heavily uh, modified form of it, is often thought of as a waymark of orthodox theology. And there is no doubt that the word homoousios is the cornerstone and crown jewel of that creed. As many of you uh, know, this word, often translated consubstantial or same substance, was used at Nicaea to define the ontological relationship between God and Jesus. The Father and Son were said to be homoousios, of the same substance. And this definition ultimately proved, through much trial and travail, the substrate on which the doctrine of the Trinity was later formed. And the word still forms, in fact, the foundation of modern Trinitarian theology. So our mission today is to discover how and why the word homoousios ever got put into the Nicene Creed. And we are going to do this by considering several popular ideas about how and why this happened. And from those alternatives, we're ultimately going to construct our own better theory that gives us a more complete picture of the word's appearance and usage at Nicaea. But before we can begin this investigation, we must ask, why embark on such a complicated and even esoteric inquiry as this? First, we are pursuing this topic because today it is still widely believed and taught that the word homoousios at Nicaea was merely a reflection of what the majority of Christians have always said about God and Jesus. To this day, Nicaea's use of this word is portrayed as a defensive maneuver made by a body of united and true Christians standing together against heretical innovators who had recently dared to suggest that Jesus wasn't God. Thus, by analyzing the origins, intentions, and aftermath of the word's usage at Nicaea, we can gain valuable insight as to whether or not this truly was the case. 
And second, we're doing this because it will provide a better vantage point by which to make more informed value judgments on its place in Christian confession. And in this light, if we discover that the official story about this word is lacking in some way, if we discover that the crown jewel of Nicaea isn't what it's typically made out to be, then what else about the Nicene Creed might be worth reconsidering? What other traditions might church history challenge us to revisit? And finally, we're doing this because church history is fun. <laughs> and because truth is important. So, without further ado, we'll get started. I'm going to begin by setting the stage for us and introducing several historical persons of interest who will be involved in some way in the historical theories that we will be uh, analyzing. Like any good mystery, there's a tangled web of characters that we're going to need to sort through. And to make matters worse, this mystery is from 1,700 years ago, and almost all of the characters' names end in the same three letters, I-U-S. <laughs> so, in a valiant effort to keep this all as straight as possible, I'll be briefly introducing some of these important persons to you. Okay, first we have Arius. Arius was a presbyter from Egypt who got in trouble with his bishop for saying that the father and son were distinct beings and that there was a time when the son did not exist. The Council of Nicaea was ultimately called to settle this problem surrounding him. Next, we have Constantine, the first Christian emperor. He was the one who uh, called the Council of Nicaea. He wanted the Christians to stop quarreling. He wanted Arius and his opponents to just keep quiet and settle their disagreement in private. But he was ultimately compelled to uh, call the council to fix the matter. Next, we have Hosius. Hosius was an important bishop and was uh, Emperor Constantine's religious advisor. He was instrumental in setting up the council, and he would uh, later preside over other councils of the church as well. Lactantius was Constantine's other religious advisor. He actually died around 325, but at the time Lactantius was working to bridge the gap between paganism and Christianity in the empire. He was very well read in pagan and Gnostic literature, as we will see. Next, we have Marcellus. Now, Marcellus was an interesting and peculiar bishop from Ancyra, and he held to a monarchian modalist type of theology. Next, we have Eusebius, the famous subordinationist bishop who was at the council. As a church historian, he records what he saw at the council, and he uh, also later became Emperor Constantine's biographer. Now, Tertullian, he wasn't at the Council of Nicaea. Tertullian was uh, from the previous century, the third century. The council would take place 85 years after his death, but he was an influential theologian in the West who had pioneered some important theological language in Latin, which uh, we'll hear more about soon. And finally, Philostorgius. We have uh, here another man who was not at the council, but Philostorgius was a later church historian and a type of uh, Unitarian subordinationist. He wrote an alternative church history that provides some interesting information about the events just before the Council of Nicaea. That's all the characters. And remember, our goal today is to analyze several alternatives for how and why the word got put into the creed, and then to put together a better picture uh, using what we can from those options. And again, these options will involve one or more of these persons of interest, so I'll try and refresh your memory about who is who as we go through them, okay? But first, before we can do that, a little background. Let's learn a bit about the events in the years leading up to the Council of Nicaea. As we've uh, already mentioned, Arius and his bishop had a little disagreement. Arius had ultimately taught that the father and son were distinct beings and that there was a time when the son was not. 
This contravened with his opponents, who had claimed that the sun was eternally generated. But Arius defended his own Unitarian subordinationism as traditional Christian doctrine. But who was right? When Arius separated the father and son in essence, was he an innovator or a theological conservative? And just what was the relationship between God and Jesus? The controversy soon became a major scandal and thus caught the attention of the emperor. Constantine the Great, traditionally thought to have converted to Christianity in the year 312, ultimately decided that the Arian controversy, as it soon came to be called, needed to end, and to end quickly. And he eventually summoned the Council of Nicaea to settle it. But what were the motivations behind Constantine's intervention? While we don't have time to delve into the emperor's fascinating religious journey, maybe we'll save that uh, for another lecture, we may say this at least. Constantine was a man who was looking to bridge the pagan and Christian worlds in his empire. A man who desired theological unity among his subjects. This religious unity, he thought, would invite God's favor and would guarantee prosperity and safety for the realm. Thus, theological unity among Christians was his chief concern in summoning the Council of Nicaea, and we clearly get this sense from his letters. And by the end of this presentation, we will be considering the possibility that both Constantine's desire for unity and his own pagan background may have had something to do with the decisions made at Nicaea. Furthermore, we will soon investigate whether or not the word homoousios itself can be connected to Constantine and his pagan background. But before we travel down that road, and before we consider the other theories at hand, we need to get a few more things on the table in regard to the word homoousios and the so-called Arian controversy. First of all, it's important to note that the use of homoousios was not originally a matter of debate between Arius and his opponents. In fact, in Arius' letter, and the, the way in which he references the term as a definition of relationship between the father and son even gives us the impression that he knows his opponents didn't agree with it either. Arius had made it well known that he had personally rejected the word, and he even connected the use of that word to Gnostics. In his Confession of Faith, he affirms that the term homoousios represents Gnostic doctrine, and he ultimately de declares that he and his friends, quote, are not prepared to affirm that the Son is homoousios with the Father. Ultimately, Arius refers to the definition homoousios as if it were something widely known to be inappropriate or alien to the Catholic faith. And this seems correct, because the use of homoousios to describe God and Jesus had reportedly already been banned by the earlier Council of Antioch in 268. The Catholic Encyclopedia, in fact, states that, quote, it must be regarded as certain that the Council rejected the term homoousios, end quote. And as Bishop Hansen notes, this fact ultimately caused considerable embarrassment to those theologians who wanted to defend its inclusion in an official doctrinal statement at Nicaea. And all this indicates that the definition was not well established among the Catholics and was even seen as foreign and alien to the Orthodox faith. And as we will now see, homoousios had been, it is true, largely the property of the Gnostics, the Hermeticists, and the pagans. In his landmark investigation, scholar Christopher Stead cataloged every pre-Nicene occurrence of the word. 
We don't have time to go through uh, each of these instances, of course, but I'm including this here to demonstrate what virtually all scholars agree upon, and that is the fact that the first people to use the word homoousios in a theological context were Gnostics. There was no usage of the word before the Gnostics, and in fact, scholar Pierre Franco Beatrice, in his own landmark study, confirms that the Christian Gnostics were in fact the very first to introduce this term into the wider Christian world. But what did this term originally mean to the uh, early Gnostics? In these circles, the term was first used to describe two or more different beings who are compounded of kindred substance, and it was used alongside notions of emanation. Stead reveals that in the majority of the earliest cases, the notion of usia, substance, that is implied, is either material or it's conceived in physical terms. It thus means roughly made of the same kind of stuff. Stead also concludes that, quote, when homoousios first appears, it is not used to express the Christian theology of the Trinity, but goes back to pre-Christian times. So, if this is true, then where did the Christian Gnostics first learn to use the term? Beatrice explains that the Christian Gnostics had first drawn the word directly from Hermetic sources, that is, from Egyptian pagan Gnostic sources. The earliest use of the word in extant literature is, in fact, found in the important Hermetic tractate Poimandres, which dates to the first century CE at the latest. In this pagan text, the word is used to define the relationship between a monotheistic God, God the Father, and his emanated Logos, who is cast as a second God, a Deuteros Theos, a second God, and this entity is called the Son of God. Now, we won't read through all of these quotations here, but ultimately, what you need to understand is that here in this pagan Gnostic document, we have God the Father, who is homoousios with the Logos, his Son. And surprisingly, we already have here the language of Nicaea, in which God and his son, the Logos, are homoousios. But at this point, we aren't quite ready to dive any deeper into the Egyptian poimandres. At present, we only need to recognize that there was no widely established pre-Nicene use of homoousios to describe God and Jesus among the Catholics. Now, I must mention that it is true that there was a controversy regarding a group of Libyan modalist bishops who were allegedly using the word in the third century, but it was not at all being used in the orthodox Trinitarian sense and was ultimately rejected, as we've seen. And it is true, Origen, uh, among others, does mention the word when he refers to his Gnostic opponents, and there are a few doubtful occurrences of the word in Origen's own opinions, which appear in uh, Rufinus's uh, horrible translations, if we can even call them that. But again, what we need to recognize is that before Nicaea, the word was not only banned by a proto-Orthodox council, but was largely known to be the property of Gnostics of various shades. When the Trinity's podcast returns, Mr. Chandler explains why the word homoousios was objectionable to many mid-4th century Eastern bishops.
But on a theological level, why might this word be worthy of rejection? Why would Eastern bishops in particular, which composed the majority of bishops at Nicaea, why might Eastern bishops in particular not approve of this word beyond its suspicious history? Let's go back to Arius and his letter in which he rejects the word homoousios. In his letter, Arius begins by strongly condemning Valentinian emanationism, which had involved the idea that the Son was a materialistic projection from the Father's substance. Arius then strongly condemns Manichaean Gnostic teaching that the offspring is a homoousios portion of the Father. And towards the end of his letter, Arius then links homoousios to emanationism and these elements to the idea that God is material and that the Son is a part of the Father's material. Now, knowing how indebted the Eastern bishops were to Origen and to the idea that God's essence is immaterial, it's not surprising that Arius and other Eastern bishops would denounce such thinking. For Eastern theologians like Arius, the use of the phrase from the Father, homoousios, this suggested that God was material, indivisible, and changeable. The general distaste in the East for materialistic theology and their distaste for the word homoousios, which they believed implied uh, such things, is precisely why Arius brings these items up in a defense of himself against his opponents. He's demonstrating that he is not subscribing to theological elements which they mutually condemn. Thus, in the years prior to Nicaea, the Manichaean, Valentinian, Gnostic, and Hermetic use of the term can largely be seen as having traveled along the same axis of meaning. It referred to two or more beings who severally have, do not jointly constitute, they severally have the same substance. And this word carried materialistic connotations. Now, as uh, Dr. Tuggy pointed out for us in his excellent book on the Trinity last year, that depending on how one interprets the word usia, there are no less than nine possible meanings that homoousios could really have. But what I've described here, this Gnostic materialistic meaning, this was the typical meaning to uh, Christian theologians before Nicaea. So, from both a theological and a political standpoint, remember it's banned, from both a theological and political standpoint, this would have been an unattractive word to the majority of the bishops at Nicaea. Now, if all of this is true, then how did the word ever get adopted? How did it go from being taboo to being the fundamental definition of orthodoxy? Today we have several options before us several alternatives for answering how the word got into the creed, and we'll review those options now. And the very last option that we're going to consider will ultimately bring us back to Poimandres, back to Constantine, but first let's take a look at some of the other alternatives that have been put forth. The first of these options we might call Tertullian's tradition. And this is the idea that the word was only an Eastern reflection of Tertullian's Western Latin tradition of una substantia. In other words, that it was agreed upon at Nicaea due to its already being an established way of expressing the relationship between God and Jesus in Catholic tradition. Option B, the anti-Arius maneuver. The word was chosen because it was theologically ambiguous and had no fixed meaning, and because it would serve to expel Arius, remember, who rejected it, but at the same time it wouldn't force too strict of a doctrine on the rest of the bishops. Option C, Hosea's strategy. 
The word was personally proposed by Hosius of Cordova, either on the grounds that it was an established tradition or that it was ambiguous and would expel Arius. Option D. The word was chosen to deliberately represent the monarchian modalist-type theology of Marcellus of Ancyra. And the last one, Constantine's background. The word first appeared due to a theological initiative from Constantine, who learned it from his pagan Gnostic background. Now, this is not an exhaustive list of options, but it's as many as we have time for. But I must point out that in constructing our final theory, there's no need to choose only one of these options. In reality, we may need to determine which combination of these factors ultimately produces, again, the best picture of the appearance and use of the word in Nicaea. So let's go ahead and start with option A, that the word homoousios was merely an Eastern reflection of Tertullian's Western tradition of unisubstantia. Okay, so what's the evidence for this? Well, this really is uh, the most widely understood view, and it really is the basic view of many mainstream apologists. They'll argue that Tertullian had already used the Latin version of this word, and in precisely the Nicene sense. And uh, to substantiate this, no pun intended, people will point to Tertullian's teaching that the father and son are unisubstantia in Latin, and then they'll say, well, homoousios is merely the Greek translation of this Latin phrase, and so it was only natural that one or more of the bishops uh, would have suggested that it would be, would be put in the creed. However, Beatrice explains that this is an outdated thesis, that the word homoousios was merely the Greek equivalent of the Latin unisubstantia. Beatrice says that today this theory is, quote, definitely to be rejected. And experts like Christopher Stead and RPC Hansen also say it's to be rejected. Indeed, Tertullian had used the Latin unisubstantia in his own doctrines, but Tertullian actually uses the Latin consubstantialis or consubstantius when translating the acutely Gnostic word homoousios in his writings against his Gnostic opponents. So the words are not, therefore, equivalent. But if Tertullian's language was not the source of Nicaea's homoousios, was at least Tertullian's theology consciously represented by the council and their use of the word as is often alleged? Theologically speaking, Tertullian's doctrine, which he chose to represent with the phrase unisubstantia, is surprisingly similar to the Gnostic theology that he condemned. Taking after the Stoics, Tertullian had believed that God's essence was material. This material God had ultimately emanated out a portion of his divine essence, and this portion had become the Son. Despite a few differences, Tertullian's view and the Gnostic view remain incredibly similar. Both conceive of the divine essence in material terms, hold that the Son was emanated out of this essence, and identify the Son as a portion of God. And on this point, Tertullian actually appears to be in agreement with the Manichaean view reported by Arius. Again, as the majority of bishops at Nicaea were from the east, and thus under the influence of Origen, who said God is immaterial, the bishops at the council would have strongly rejected Tertullian's materialistic theology. Thus, it is extremely difficult to see Nicaea as a reproduction of Tertullian's theology. Indeed, Eusebius reveals that Homoousios was conceived of at Nicaea in a strictly immaterial sense. Thus, Tertullian's doctrine was contrary to Nicaea. And as we've already discussed, the word had already been banned as well. So, in the end, I have to agree with Beatrice, with Stead, with Hansen, that this is an outdated notion and is definitely to be rejected. What about option B? 
The word was chosen because it was theologically ambiguous and had no fixed meaning and would serve to expel Arius without forcing too strict a doctrine on the rest of the bishops. What's the evidence for this? Well, Athanasius could sign on to the word. Eusebius could sign on to the word. Marcellus could sign on to the word. So they could all agree to the language, but each of these theologians held to vastly divergent theologies. And yet they all signed the creed. So it seems obvious that the bishops were interpreting the language in their own way. And we get that sense from Eusebius especially, who works very hard to explain away his signature to his constituents in a letter. And he goes to great lengths to make sure his people know what he understood it to mean. Also supporting this option, as we've already saw, is the fact that Arius had already made it known that he rejected the word, that he would not subscribe to it. He rejected it all as the property of Gnostics. And this was true, but since the term still could be taken in a variety of ways, and since the Nicene bishops knew that Arius would never accept the term, it does appear to have made the perfect vehicle for getting rid of Arius while at the same time not placing too tight of theological restrictions on themselves. Further evidence for this is to be found in the fact that after Nicaea, the word was rejected by several councils as confusing. This indicates that there was yet no universal meaning among the Catholics and suggests that it had been employed to serve a specific purpose. And after that purpose was served, it was time to reevaluate the term's usefulness. As it states in the Oxford Handbook of the Trinity, quote, few signers of Nicaea were fully satisfied with the creed, especially in its use of the term homoousios, which had been rejected earlier at Synods in Antioch. So there is uh, ultimately a, a very strong case that one could build for this option. I haven't even had room to show all of the evidence for it. But one shortcoming here is that this explanation, as I've laid it out, doesn't actually explain where the word came from or who proposed it. It doesn't get at the source of the theological word. It just offers a reason why it was ultimately accepted. So if we like this option, we may ultimately need to pair it with another option in order to give us a fuller picture. But ultimately, there's just a lot of strong evidence for this point that for the bishops, at least, its meaning was ambiguous and it served to expel Arius. So I'm going to go ahead and mark this as a very good option. Option C, the word was personally proposed by Hosius of Cordova. Okay, so we're trying to look at Hosius as the source of the word. And we know that Hosius was indeed an important religious advisor to Emperor Constantine. He was instrumental in helping Constantine navigate the controversy over Arius and even with facilitating the council itself. So he is an important figure, certainly. But what about the idea that Hosius wanted to put Homoousius in the creed? Well, we actually do find some support of that idea in the record of the church historian named Philostorgius. Philostorgius says, that before the council, Hosius indeed met secretly with Arius' opponents, and together they plotted how they could expel Arius. And Philostorgius says that they decided to use homoousios to force Arius' rejection. So, on the surface, it looks like we do have a church record, albeit a later one, which indicates that Hosius was responsible for putting the term in the creed we may need to uh, consider this option a bit more critically. So let's start looking at the evidence against this option. 
First, Philostorgius' record, which says uh, Hosius was responsible, while it's useful in many ways, comes to us only through a summary and various fragments. It is just as possible that he or the writer summarizing his work is using the reference to Homoousios here as a shorthand for an anti-Aryan creed that they knew they had to produce in order to force his rejection. Thus, we cannot be sure that the occurrence of the specific term homoousios here is from the pen of Philostorgius or from the pen of the writer who is summarizing what Philostorgius meant. Next, we actually find that later, Hosius was actually instrumental in helping to remove the word homoousios from later creeds after Nicaea. Hosius personally presided over the Council of Sardica in 343, in which he removed the word from the official Christian confession. Hosius' evident discomfort with the word makes it therefore difficult to see the term as his pet project at Nicaea. As Beatrice concludes, quote, this is the decisive proof that Hosius had no responsibility at all. So while this is an interesting option, there may be more solid historical grounds on which to stand than the evidence presented here with this option. Option D, the word was chosen to deliberately represent the monarchian modalist type theology of Marcellus. Now this is an interesting option. Recent considerations of Marcellus have begun to refocus our attention on this fascinating character. It's now believed that he had much more of an important role at Nicaea than uh, previously thought. It's been said, therefore, that analysis of Marcellus can yield new light on the creed itself. And at first glance, it certainly appears to do so. Due to time constraints, we can't go into all of the details today. The bottom line is this. In the original anathemas affixed to the Nicene Creed, there is language that sounds modalistic. Okay, it really makes Nicaea sound like the doctrine of Marcellus. And it is true that a few earlier modalists uh, in Libya in the third century had tried to use this word to present their doctrine. Alastair Logan, for example, uh, ultimately thinks that Marcellus was responsible for the production of homoousis at Nicaea. But is there really good enough evidence to make this sort of conclusion? First, we should point out that the case for Marcellus is weakened by the fact that the word never appears in any of his own writings. Second, uh, regarding the uh, language allegedly implying modalism in the creed, we should point out that the language found in the anathemas changed in meaning over time. At the time of Nicaea, the language could be taken in a few different ways. Nicaea didn't have to be read in a modalistic sense, which is evident by the fact that non-modalists like Marcellus' enemy Eusebius and others were able to sign the creed. Next, we can look at the vigorous efforts to defame and depose Marcellus after Nicaea that were made by people who had signed on uh, to the creed, like the Eusebians. It seems more than reasonable that they had all been interpreting Nicaea in their own way, but when the Eusebians came face to face with the doctrine of Marcellus later on, they clearly rejected it repeatedly. Marcellus' theology was outright condemned by successive councils, and he was even deposed as bishop. In fact, many of the later creeds were developed precisely in opposition to Marcellan teaching. It's almost as if they realized that Nicaea's language had inadvertently left the door open to his theology, and they needed to close it. And finally, it seems that later on, Marcellus actually assisted Hosius in the production of a new creed after Constantine's death, which removed the homoousion. So again, that makes it harder to associate with him at Nicaea. 
And finally, we can now turn to an option which you have probably guessed, I'm going to argue is a very good option. <laughs> and that's option E, that the word first appeared due to a theological initiative from Constantine who learned it from his pagan Gnostic background. Okay, so I'll start out by pointing out that it's well known that Eusebius reports in his history that Constantine was indeed the one who personally proposed the word be added to the creed. So let's start on the negative side this time, okay? Uh, we're going to start on the ne negative side. What might be the evidence against this? Well, it's, uh, it's clear that Eusebius was a political propagandist. Historians have called him the great publicist of Constantine and a political theologian. His records have experienced constant criticism as the biased accounts of a political survivalist. And this fact taints the overall sense of reliability that we get from Eusebius' work. In other words, we might be wary of this option due to the possibility that Eusebius simply made it up. But maybe the evidence for this option will uh, be enough to overcome our wariness. And there is indeed a lot of evidence for option E. But first, let's take a closer look at the aforementioned objection. Before we call someone a liar, we have to first establish a clear motive. After all, Eusebius was there at the council, and the events were witnessed by around 250 bishops and doubtless others, and his records are intended to be an eyewitness account. If we can't establish a motive for why Eusebius would lie that Constantine inserted the homoousion, then it's unlikely that our theory will stand up. Yes, it's true. Eusebius was a propagandist and often wrote in praise of the emperor. But why would he invent this particular story? Looking back, the idea that an unbaptized Roman emperor inserted and then insisted on this banned term and exercised such influence on this Christian council has been more of a bother to defenders of Nicaea than anything. Even today, uh, apologists are constantly having to deal with the unfavorable implications of this story, and they have to explain it away, or to argue that Constantine didn't really have that much influence at Nicaea, or that, oh, well, Constantine had actually learned it from a Christian bishop uh, like Hosius, and on and on. So if Eusebius is a propagandist who wants to paint Nicaea as the pure and holy activity of the church, establishing what all Christians have always believed, why go to such lengths to explain in detail that an unbaptized emperor, not the bishops, was responsible for the creed's key definition? Regardless, this is the report of Eusebius, and it's actually one which a great many church historians agree with. Many, if not most, think that Eusebius' account on this point is to be believed, that Constantine did insert it to, into the creed. And I agree with this particular point as well. And in the end, there appears to be more substantial evidence that Constantine proposed the term than anyone else. When the Trinity's podcast returns, why did the Emperor Constantine pick this word? What is still up for debate, however, 
and indeed what we're going to be further investigating in this option, is where Constantine got the idea from. A typical orthodox theory is that Constantine learned it from Hosius or from another bishop and that the word was nothing but more than a Greek translation of Tertullian's Latin phrase. But we've already uh, taken a look at the weaknesses of that view. And so we're going to take a closer look at uh, option E and see if we can discern a better source from which Constantine might have drawn the word. And already, Professor Franco Beatrice in 2002 put forward an incredible and I think powerful answer to this question of origins. He suggests that Constantine indeed drew the term from Hermeticism, particularly from the Hermetic Gnostic text that we read from earlier, Poimandres. But how could we ever substantiate such a thing? While many believe that Constantine inserted the word at Nicaea, most aren't aware of the fact that in Eusebius' record, Constantine also provided a philosophical explanation of his own use of the term. In Constantine's oration to the assembly, recorded by Eusebius, Constantine justifies the identification of Jesus Christ as God from God and homoousius with the Father in the following way. Constantine invokes Plato, the greatest of the pagan philosophers, saying this, For Plato himself declared with truth a God exalted above every essence. But to him he added also a second, distinguishing them as two, though both possessing one perfection, and the being of the second deity proceeding from the first. Now, Constantine's citation of Plato as justification for the establishment of Christian doctrine may already be concerning to some, but was it really Plato to whom the emperor appealed for justification? Let's investigate a bit further. As Beatrice points out, Constantine's explanation, quote, evidently has no relation at all with Plato's real doctrine. Indeed, as Beatrice reveals, the Plato recalled by Constantine is just a name used to cover over precisely the Egyptian and Hermetic theology of consubstantiality of the Logos Son with the Father. In other words, what you're reading here is a Hermetic interpretation of Plato. But where did Constantine ever learn to read Plato in this acutely Hermetic way? There's been much talk about Constantine's religious advisor, Hosius, but perhaps there hasn't been enough attention on Constantine's other religious advisor, Lucius Lactantius. Lactantius was a man preoccupied with harmonizing the pagan and Christian worlds. He wrote lengthy defenses of Christian doctrine in which he appealed to pagan and Gnostic texts to substantiate Christian views. To defend Christianity from the Platonists who were attacking it, he opted to find the common ground between them. And in Hermeticism, he believed he had found that common ground. In fact, Lactantius enthusiastically quotes from Hermetic texts many times, and even directly quotes from Poimandres 14 times. Now, with Lactantius' grand purpose of establishing a theological relationship between Platonism, Hermeticism, and Christianity in view, it becomes easy to believe that he would have, as Constantine's religious advisor, shared these sentiments and insights with the emperor. But most importantly, almost mirroring Constantine's same quote about Plato, Lactantius himself says this, quote, Plato spoke about the first and second God. And then Lactantius says that Plato was only following the teaching of Hermes. 
This is just incredible, incredible evidence. And this provides the most direct and obvious path towards answering the question of how Constantine learned to read Plato in the hermetic way that he did. He learned it from his advisor, Lactantius. Professor Beatrice ultimately postulates that, quote, in the years of the outbreak of the Arian controversy, Lactantius might have played a decisive role in influencing Constantine's hermetic interpretation of Plato's theology, and consequently with the emperor's decision to insert homoousios in the Council of Nicaea. So to me, this is much more powerful than the common idea that Constantine learned the word from Hosius, who had learned the word from Tertullian. We've already seen the weaknesses of that view. On the other hand, this option that Constantine learned it from Lactantius, or even learned it from his own personal knowledge of Poimandris, is quite strong. Again, Lactantius was reading and teaching Constantine in his court from a document which contains the very Greek word itself, and which appears to use it in the same way that Constantine's interpretation of Plato demands. So a much more powerful connection here. And just to substantiate this idea even further, there's still more evidence worth looking at that draws us towards this option that Constantine learned the word from his Egyptian hermetic background. Indeed, we can detect lines of evidence that actually connect Constantine to Egyptian theology, to hermetic ideas both before and after the Council of Nicaea. Let's take a look. From 311 to 315, we have several pagan panegyrics written in honor of Constantine, several inscriptions as well, which indicate that Constantine had identified his God as the divine mind. As we saw earlier in Poimandres, the divine mind is the chief name of the monotheistic God of Hermeticism. Second, in another Hermetic book, a very important one called the Asclepius, we find yet another text teaching a doctrine of consubstantiality between God the Father and the Son. And this book was also quoted many times by Lactantius, who quoted it in his court teaching to Constantine, probably starting around the year 310. It may also be worth noting that another one of Constantine's advisors was the Neoplatonist Sopater of Apamea, who is known to have dabbled in Hermeticism. Ultimately, there can be no doubt that Constantine was surrounded by hermetic sources. But lastly, and here is the most uh, interesting evidence of all, in the year 326, probably less than one year after the Council of Nicaea, we have on record that Constantine sent a pagan mystic named Nicagoras on a trip to Egypt. Constantine sent Nicagoras to the Egyptian Valley of the Kings. As you may know, the Valley of the Kings is the famous burial site of the ancient pharaohs of Egypt. And uh, Constantine had ostensibly enabled this pagan to make a journey specifically to the syringes, which are the underground tunnels beneath the Valley of the Kings. And while this pagan mystic Nicagoras was there, he actually left some interesting inscriptions in the stone. In his message, Nicagoras says that he went there mimicking the same trip that Plato had once made there hundreds of years earlier. Indeed, legends had said that Plato had once traveled to Egypt to learn the Egyptian secret theology from their priests. And now Nicagoras was evidently enabled by Constantine to follow in Plato's footsteps. In fact, Nicagoras mentions Constantine by name in his inscription. He says this, I, Nicagoras, 
investigated the tombs many lifetimes after the divine Plato from Athens, and I marveled and gave thanks to the gods and to the most devout Emperor Constantine who made this possible for me. So again, we have Constantine, who by sending Nicagoras on this trip is perhaps demonstrating some interest in a link between Plato and Egypt. Constantine himself speaks of Greek philosophers who had traveled to Egypt to learn their doctrines from Egyptian priests. And to further establish the connection of this strange trip to the Homoousios of Nicaea, we can look at yet another inscription found in the area where Constantine sent Nicagoras. On the stone walls of the tunnels, just what do you think was found inscribed there? The word homoousios. Yes, the place where Constantine sent a pagan mystic to follow in Plato's footsteps in Egypt actually had homoousios on the wall in Greek. And not only that, but if you look at the full inscription, it sounds very much like Nicaea. There was a unique mind and from him came the intelligent Logos, the eternally incorruptible Son, reflection of the intelligent Father, one with the Father, distinct from the Father only by name, but one with the Father and one from one, homoousios, eternally incorruptible. Just incredible. Again, the Logos, the Son, is homoousios with God the Father. Just as we saw in the Hermetic text, just as we see in Constantine, and just as we see in Nicaea. So ultimately, we have several sources which connect Plato, Egypt, and Hermetic theology, which can all be traced to Constantine. Thus, in the end, the Egyptian Hermetic theology provides the most direct and obvious link between Constantine and Homoousios. As Beatrice finally concludes, this demonstrates that, quote, the specifically theological use of Homoousios should be traced back to its real Egyptian pre-Christian roots. And I ultimately agree that an element from Greco-Egyptian religion, specifically Hermeticism, was indeed what Constantine inserted into Nicaea. So I'll rate this a very good option. But if we like this, we're still left with the question of precisely what Constantine meant by the word. When the Trinity's podcast returns, Mr. Chandler explores Constantine's own theology, asking what this term homoousios meant to him. now quickly turn our attention towards Constantine's personal understanding of homoousios. What do the available sources tell us about the emperor's theology at the time of Nicaea? We have three sets of data to consider before making a conclusion about his personal beliefs at the time of Nicaea. And I'm going to go very quickly through these, and then I'm going to sum it all up at the end, okay? So don't worry. First, in Constantine's oration, written around the time of Nicaea, perhaps a couple of months before Nicaea, perhaps a couple of months after, it's not quite agreed upon, 
the emperor says that his own doctrine agrees with the doctrine of the great Plato, who he said had taught the following sound sentiments with truth. Okay, so this is how Constantine represents his own doctrine. There are two gods, distinguished numerically as two. Both possess one perfection. The being of the second deity, or the second god, proceeded from the first. The second deity is the obedient agent of the first god. And the second deity, the Son and Logos, is also to be named God. In this same oration, Constantine speaks directly of the relationship between the Son and Father in the following way. He says, God has no origin. This is the Father. He says, the Father has no origin and therefore no beginning. The generation of the Son was accompanied by no decrease of the Father's substance. Everything has a cause, he says, and the Father is the cause of the Son. He says everything has a preceding cause, a cause that precedes it, and the Father is the cause of the Son. And next he says that the Son has an eternal nature. Did you hear that? An eternal nature. It's his nature that's eternal, not necessarily the personal Son. Okay, and next, finally, Eusebius, in his letter, he says that the emperor explained the following in a speech that he gave to the bishops. He said this. This is what Constantine wanted the bishops to understand about how he's using this language. He says, an usia is not like a body. The generated son is not severed, is not divided from the father. The divine nature is immaterial, intellectual, incorporeal. The Son pre-existed His birth in Mary, being generated before all ages. The Son, Logos, was eminent in God. And listen to this, very important. He says the Son was potentially with the Father. God had been an eternally a Father in the sense that He had the potential to be a Father, as He has the potential to be all things, it says. Next, it is wrong to say, it's just wrong to say that there was a time when God became the Father of the Son because it's just axiomatic that God is immutable and never changes. We all know that, so we're not going to say that. And finally, and this is probably the most important point made, Constantine said that we should ultimately conceive of homoousios. We should conceive of the relationship of the Son to, to God in, quote, a divine and ineffable manner. Okay, or in an inexpressible way. Okay, so what are we to make of all of this? What did the emperor really think at the time of Nicaea? I believe I can articulate Constantine's personal theology at the time of Nicaea in the following way. For him, there had first existed a transcendent, immaterial, and solitary God and there was an eminent Logos within this God. And this was a potential second God. And at some point, this God emanated out of his individual immaterial substance, a second deity, the Logos. There was no literal eternal generation per se. The Logos did not literally exist as a distinct entity until his generation. Still, it must be said that God was in a sense eternally a father due to his potential to be a father and because God is immutable. 
This second being was made of the same immaterial stuff as the first God, though his generation did not diminish the substance of the first God in any way. The first God remained unchanged. Very important for him. And I think this is ultimately how we can read Constantine's comment that the Son was not divided from God. That sort of language, severing and dividing, it had materialistic connotations. For most people, it implied a diminishing of the Father. So by saying emphatically that they weren't divided, it didn't necessarily mean that there was an organic connection between them. But it was describing the fact that the Father's substance wasn't diminished. So there were ultimately two gods. Right? Constantine says they're to be distinguished numerically as two. And they were homoousios, made of the same kind of stuff. Two beings who severally have, but do not jointly constitute, the same usia. And the son is the subordinate agent of the father. But how can this be? How could Constantine hold to this sort of theology, you might ask? Nicaea's Creed clearly anathematizes anyone who says the Son was not eternal. In other words, that there was a time when God was not a father. How could Constantine, believing such things, endorse such a creed? Well, it's through Eusebius' letter that we see that even Constantine had read the language of the creed in his own way for the sake of unity. During the proceedings, I believe that he could see that the majority of the bishops wanted to say that the Son existed eternally. They wanted to say that God was eternally a father. So he, like Eusebius and others, interpreted the language to fit his own theology in order to establish a consensus on the condition that the bishops also ascended to certain of his own preferences, namely his affinity for the hermetic Gnostic term homoousios. But whatever homoousios had originally meant, or even what it meant to Constantine personally, for the sake of excluding perceived troublemakers and maintaining unity, which again, we must not forget, was always Constantine's chief prize. The emperor appears to have allowed the word to have been interpreted in new ways at Nicaea, as evidenced by his availing the term of its typical material sense. Right? He tells them, you're not to think of this in a material way, which is how it had typically been understood. So by availing the term of its typical material sense, he's inviting new interpretations of the word. This actually might even be said to represent Constantine's and Nicaea's great theological achievement. The shift in the meaning of homoousios away from its typical materialistic connotations towards immateriality. And it's right to say that Constantine, in addition to enabling this shift in meaning, also enabled other interpretations of this language. And how did he do that? Well, by encouraging the bishops to think of it in a divine and ineffable manner, or in an inexpressible way. This leads us to believe that Constantine, though intent on using forms familiar to him, was ultimately setting up a useful mystery. And this plays very well into option B, which we considered earlier, that the meaning of homoousios was ambiguous, even deliberately ambiguous. It may have had a specific sense for Constantine, but there was no agreement among the bishops. Nevertheless, it would force the rejection of Arius, who had publicly rejected the word as Gnostic and unscriptural. The declared inexpressibility of Constantine's homoousios indeed left the door wide open to a variety of different theologies, and thus, to as much theological unity as could be achieved in the aftermath of an Arian censure.
And with this, our final solution begins to come into view. Let's take a quick look at our results. Option A was to be rejected. Option B was strong, but it needed to be set within a larger context. Options C and D were to be rejected. And uh, option E proved strong, very strong. So my final solution is this. Option E is the prime cause resulting in option B, which then resulted in the prime cause inadvertently resembling option D. In other words, my final conclusion is that there was no universal agreed upon meaning of homoousios among the bishops at Nicaea. And the reason why that is, is because the word was inserted by Constantine, who drew it from pagan Gnostic sources. The bishops were suddenly laden with the task of defining homoousios in a non-Gnostic way. And because of Constantine's influence, the bishops were on the one hand compelled to get on board with it, and on the other hand, they justified their acceptance of it due to its power to exclude Arius. And then they were left to privately deduce their own meanings or explain it away to their constituents. But what they had done by getting on board with Constantine's idea was unwittingly open the door to the modalist type theology of Marcellus of Ancyra. And what did the immediate aftermath of Nicaea look like? Later, some of the anti-Arian bishops revealed that during the council, they had been reduced to silence in order to preserve peace. Remember, peace, unity, consensus, this is what's at stake. Of course, Arian signatories, remember, some of the Arians consented to be exiled with Arius, some of them didn't, and signed the creed. But some of them we know, like the Bishop of Nicomedia, we know he later confessed to Constantine that in signing, he had only been, quote, subscribing to the heresy from fear of you. It was thus a problem for anti-Arians and Arians alike, both at the council and in its wake. Constantine, on the other hand, had been convinced that Christian doctrine could be interpreted through the forms of pagan tradition. He furthermore shared the concern of the anti-Arians and hoped that through such categories he could preserve the divinity of the Son, keeping him on the side of the Divine Father and enable a theological consensus at the same time. Eusebius of Caesarea appears to have uh, reluctantly accepted the word because for him it did not ultimately contradict his own famous doctrine of two usii, of two gods. Though Eusebius was hesitant to assent to it for the many reasons we've just described, when Constantine absolved the word of its materialistic connotations, it appears surprisingly conducive to Eusebian theology. Now, Marcellus of Ancyra, he wrote against both the Eusebians and the Arians, strongly arguing that Eusebius and the Arians were in fact crypto-hermeticists and Gnostics. He even says repeatedly that the Eusebians and the Arians had borrowed their doctrine of two hypostases from Plato and Hermes. He accuses them of that. Evidently, this is because Marcellus saw that Eusebius' doctrine of two gods was akin to the Hermetic doctrine of two gods. But it was thus akin to the emperor's doctrine as well. It's interesting that Marcellus, in his dramatic critique, stopped short of directly criticizing the word homoousios 
perhaps because of Constantine's authorship and the fact that the emperor was the real crypto-hermeticist, actively infusing Christian confession with borrowed and alien elements. Hosius, the emperor's advisor, was evidently disappointed, seems to be the case. He left Constantine immediately after the council. And the bishop, once an important and prominent ally of the emperor, seems to have stayed relatively silent until the death of both Constantine and Eusebius, his enemy. After his old master and his foe had both passed, Hosius returned with Marcellus and reformulated an orthodox creed without the word homoousios. Perhaps we should read this as Hosius and Marcellus' revenge on Constantine's crypto-hermetic innovation, which had been accepted by their common enemy, Eusebius. And it is true that the word continued to pose a problem in the subsequent debates and remained a stumbling block both for Arians and their opponents. And it was not until the 380s that the Emperor Theodosius, endorsing the innovations of the Cappadocian Fathers, <coughs> finally cemented the word into Christian confession. Homoousius was thus finally accepted, not through wide theological persuasion, but at the point of an emperor's sword. Thus we have the repeated insistence of the Roman state, first by Constantine, then by Theodosius, to ultimately thank for homoousios. And for this reason, to this day, we struggle over what we are to do with the word. It is still not clear how we are to interpret homoousios. Nevertheless, it is still the cornerstone of Trinitarian orthodoxy today. The word homoousios has remained, it is true, a bleeding wound in the midst of Christian confession, and one so far carefully covered over and ignored. There can, in the end, be little overestimation of the trouble caused by Constantine's efforts to unify theologically the Christian leaders at Nicaea, and to do so through the theological forms of pagan Gnosticism. Neither can we overestimate the impact that 4th century politics had on the church's response to Constantine's initiative. Ultimately, new ways forward must be found for church history and for Christian theology, paths which lead us directly through the murky origins of our most sacred traditions. And it is only through such daring expeditions that we will locate the necessary repairs to the schismatic ruptures of the 4th century church. Where does Christian confession go from here? What value, if any, will ultimately linger in Constantine's homoousios as a means of explicating the biblical faith? What is clear is that the study of the Council of Nicaea and what homoousios originally meant and what it was summoned to do will continue to challenge us to discover clearer answers to these questions. And with a little courage, it might also lead us to better, more scriptural creeds. Thank you. This week's thinking music has been the track Again, Once Again by Fluffy. As always, there's a link on the blog post for this episode where you can listen to or download that entire track. If you love the Trinity's podcast, please share this episode on social media like Twitter or Facebook. And help other people to find the podcast by giving us an honest rating and review in the iTunes store for your country. You can also support the Trinity's podcast by giving a certain donation per episode. 
If you're interested in that, please visit patreon.com slash trinities. Finally, let us know what you think. Give us a comment on the blog post for this episode or join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash trinities. The Trinities Podcast is supported by and made for thinking believers like you. Thanks for your support, prayers, and encouragement. listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.